after 9-11 in the, in the US, lots of people were signing up for jobs as firefighters or teachers. And in the wake of the pandemic, we see lots of people signing up uh, for medical school and for nursing school. And why do we do that? It's because one of the, one of the great superpowers of human beings is it's to take a painful event and to make meaning out of it, make creativity out of it. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mind Valley podcast. Our guest today is a remarkable, remarkable woman who at one point was considered one of the most influential people in the world on LinkedIn because of her ideas. Please welcome Susan Kane to Mind Valley. Now, I want to give you an idea of what Susan Kane has done because her work is, is just so exceptional. She is a self-described introvert and wrote a remarkable book called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in the World That Can Stop Talking. It's been translated into 40 language and spent eight years on the New York Times bestseller list. It was named the number one best book of the year by Fast Company Magazine. How about that? Now, as an introvert myself, I can tell you that Susan's work is something that all of you who identify with introverts should be paying attention to. She also gave a TED Talk on the power of introverts and the hidden power of sad songs and rainy days. And it's been viewed 40 million times. LinkedIn named her as the top sixth influencer in the world, just behind Richard Branson and Melinda French Gates. And I'm so delighted to have Susan Kane with us today. Susan, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Thank you so much, Vishen. It is so great to be here with you. So, so just a bit of a backstory. Initially, we wanted to talk about introversion, but Susan's new book really intrigued me. The book is called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And after a discussion with Susan, we felt that it would be more fun, more educational, more exciting for both of us to discuss bittersweet. And I want to tell you why. And Susan, I'm, I'm going to invite you to share, share some of the key ideas from the book. And for those of you who are curious about the book, you can find it on Amazon, bittersweet, just type in bittersweet, Susan Kane, that spells C-A-I-N, and you'll be able to find it. So Susan, I find that every now and then I get into a period of melancholy. And um, it's, it's how you describe it in your book. Susan describes bittersweet as that quiet force that helps us transcend our personal and collective pain, whether from death or breakup, addiction or illness. And it's, it's, it's a, to me, it's a really beautiful state of mind. But when I explain it to friends, they ask me, are you okay? Recently, I was hosting a dinner and uh, I sent a message to one of my team members who was organizing this dinner for Mind Valley authors here in Europe. And I said, hey, I'm going to be melancholy today. Just want to let you know, my energy may be different from what you're used to. And her reply was, are you okay? Can I help? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm just saying I'm going to be melancholy. I'm letting you know my energy is going to be different. And I think I, I, I learned this from past experience. There was a time when, when I felt this, I would feel something was wrong. And I would move from melancholy and bittersweet to just sadness and then beating myself up for being sad or insecure. And you know what happened, Susan? That was really interesting for me. I watched the Walt Disney movie, the Walt Disney Pixar movie, Inside Out. Huh? Remember that? Well, I mean, not only do I remember it, but um, but that was one of the foundational stories that I I tell 
in the book, Bittersweet. I, 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 I want to hear your, your uh, experience so, with the movie, and then I'm going to tell you this story that I so had with I was, uh, Pete Docter, the, the director who made oh, the yeah, movie. Oh, yeah. So when I was, when I was uh, watching Inside Out with my kids, I was so into the movie, but I was so irritated with that sadness character, that sadness character who would come in and mess everything up. And I remember me and my kids were getting frustrated. We're like, stop listening to the sadness. Stop listening to the sadness. Listen to the positive character. But then at the end of the movie, you understand why the sadness is there. And there's that, that beauty in sadness. And that movie flipped the switch in my head. And, and so that, that was when I started reflecting on it. Because I used to be prone to depression. I've been periods in my life when the depression, the funk was so bad, it was almost suicidal. And I didn't know how to pull myself out. And that movie flipped a switch. So let's, let's hear about your work in Bittersweet and your involvement with that movie. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so you touched on so many things that are so core and so foundational to to the book that I wrote and to why I wrote it in the first place. I wrote the book because I have been gripped by a mystery all my life, which is why it is that there is this certain state of being and we feel it. We often feel it when we listen to beautiful, sad music, you know, like you hear Beethoven's Ode to Joy or Adele or whoever it is for you. And you feel not really sad at all. You feel a kind of sense of, of connection and uplift and really a sense of love that comes from this particular bittersweet state of mind in which you're kind of, you're like acutely aware of the fact that we are all impermanent beings and the people we love best will not be here forever. Um, and that in this world, joy and sorrow are forever paired. And it's like the more you become attuned to that and the more you become aware of it, the more the greater access you feel like you're having to states of, of connection and creativity and even transcendence. This is something I kept experiencing again and again, and yet there was no way to understand it in our culture because everything in US culture, and you could say global culture to some extent too, is, is about, you know, be positive, be up. And, and it's wonderful to be optimistic and upbeat and in a cheerful state of mind. So this is in no way a critique of that state of mind, but it is to say there is another way of being that exists in this world that our writers and religious traditions and wisdom traditions and artists have been talking about for centuries all over the world. And it is this bittersweet state of mind which helps us unlock our deepest creativity and our deepest love. And we need to learn how, how to do that. Should I tell you about Inside Out, the, the movie yes. you were just talking yes. about? Okay. So some years ago, I was actually visiting Pixar because I was leading a seminar there on how to harness the talents of introverts um, at Pixar. And I was lucky while I was there to uh, um, attending my seminar was, was Pete Docter, the, the great director. Um, he directed the movies Up and, and, and also Inside Out, the one that you're talking about, and also Soul. And he told me the story of how that movie Inside Out came to be focused on that character of sadness. Because originally, well, first of all, for people who haven't seen the movie, it's basically, it's about this 11-year-old girl and the movie is all about the emotions inside her mind. So it's really a movie about our emotional lives and the emotions are the characters in the movie. And as with any movie, you have to pick one or two emotion, one or two characters as your main protagonist. And so at first he had picked the emotions of joy and fear. And he made the movie. He spent like three years making this movie only to realize at the end of this three-year process that the movie was a disaster and, and it was going to flop. 
when this ha- when when he realized this, he started feeling like all the successes he had had before, those were all just a mirage that his whole career was going to flop. He was going to lose his career. He was going to lose his place at Pixar. Um, and he descended into this great sadness. And he realized that the sadness he was having about this idea that he was going to lose his career, it was really about the loss of his beloved colleagues. Like he realized he was going to lose them. And he said he, at that moment, it was like an epiphany. And he realized that the thing that sadness does, the reason it matters is because it draws us together. That, that sadness is a kind of bonding agent. And he, he said, that's when he realized that sadness had to be at the center of the movie. And he knew it was going to be a tough sell with the executive team because nobody in our culture likes sadness. Just the way you had that reaction when you first saw it, like eh, get sadness off the screen. Um, but he convinced them. He convinced them to put sadness at, at the center of the movie. And as you say, sadness was the character that, that brings all the others together. Um, and it became this huge box office and critical sensation as a result. That's so beautiful. Imagine working in a movie for three years and then realizing that, that something was amiss. But yes, that the message in that movie was incredible. And the message it was teaching kids is also so beautiful. Because I never grew up learning that, that it was okay to be sad. But I, I, so that movie in a way changed my life. Now let's talk about the book, Bittersweet. Tell us about the book. Why did you write it? What's the key idea that you're trying to get out to the world here? The key idea, I mean, is that there is a difference. And, and you talked about this at the beginning, you were talking about um, tendencies to depression that you've had. Um, and the key idea is that there is a difference between depression, which is truly something to, to, to be avoided and to be, um, to be treated. But there's a difference between that state of mind of depression, which is a kind of, you know, utter despair and hopelessness and numbness. There's a difference between that and this state of bittersweetness that that my book is shining a light on, which is an incredibly generative state that leads us towards love and towards creativity. And that it's a state that we can learn how to access, that all of us know in our hearts, we're, we're taught not to use it. But it is one of our great superpowers. Um, and so one of, one of the ideas in the book is that whatever pain you can't get rid of, make that your creative offering. And, and, and then another one of the other um, ideas of the book is when you tap into this state of bittersweetness, it is one of the greatest bonding agents we have. It's one of the greatest sources of, of love that we have. How do you take that sadness? And how do you turn that sadness into a creative offering? Well, I mean, in the book, I, I, I look at many different artists, some of them well-known and some of them just sort of creating small little acts of art in their daily lives. Because one of the principles is the point is not that you have to go out and become, you know, world famous artist. And now you've managed to take sadness and turn it into creativity. Right. You, you can do it in very small and daily ways that will enhance your life greatly. Um, but the point really is that when difficult things happen to us, and they will happen to all of us because we're human, that is what it is to be human. We don't want to admit that, you know, especially like if, if you've been lucky enough to go through your life so far without anything particularly difficult happening to you, you can start to think that that's what your identity is and that's who you are instead of realizing that in fact you are a human and therefore mortal and vulnerable and impermanent and things will happen. Okay. So when those things happen, we kind of have two fundamental choices. And one of them is to 
not really acknowledge all of these things. And what ends up happening is that we then take our pain and we turn it against ourselves in the form of depression or addiction or um, you know, many different ways. Or we might turn it against somebody else in the form of, of abuse or passive aggressiveness or what have you. Um, so that's kind of like option number one. You know, you're not acknowledging pain and you're turning it towards yourself or towards other people. But another uh, another path that we can take is to to see what that pain is, to sit with it for a while, and then to see it as a signpost that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't be experiencing the pain that you have, that you are over, let's say it's a a bereavement or a breakup or a betrayal or whatever it is. You wouldn't be experiencing that kind of pain if it weren't pointing you in the direction of that, which you love the most, that which you value the most. And we see this in in so many different ways. You know, you see like after 9-11 in the US, lots of people were signing up for jobs as firefighters or teachers. Um, and in the wake of the pandemic, we see lots of people signing up uh, for medical school and for nursing school. And why do we do that? It's because one of the one of the great superpowers of human beings is it's to take a painful event and to make meaning out of it, make creativity out of it. So we can kind of paradoxically kind of go in the direction of that pain, but we're doing that because we're planting seeds. We're making seeds grow. Um, and, and in the book, I, I offer many different stories of people who have done this in, in lots of different, uh, different realms of life so that you can find the one that works for you. Bianca, I see you turned on your camera. Did you have a question for Susan? Yes, I, w- I totally agree with what Susan was just saying. And actually, I was having a conversation regarding this pain that we can transform, you know, in our lives. But then I'm having a struggle with some people that they tend to not maybe understand up to 100% how to transform that pain into something that makes them grow. And I always say it's very good to sit with the pain, break yourself into pieces, and then rebuild yourself because that thing can never be broken. But then how how do you see this? What what kind of tools can we give to the people or what are your tools that we can give to the people and inspire them in order to transform successfully this pain into growth? Just before you answer, Susan, for the for the, sure. people, the podcast, let me just quickly introduce Bianca. Bianca is a community manager. So we're recording this with Mind Valley members who are tuned in live. And um, Bianca is from Romania. Um, and every now and then it's fun to have uh, a community manager jump in with her questions because when she hears an author say something that triggers her, that gets her thinking, like she 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 needs to switch on her mic and and ask a question. And so Bianca, I love that you asked that question. Susan, on to you. It is a great question. And thank you for doing that, Bianca. I mean, there's many different steps to take, but one is you you can think of it as, let's say in two basic steps. The first one is the step of acceptance and just being with it. And one of the tools that you can use for this is to just sit down and write whatever you're thinking. And I don't mean like, you know, write it in the way that, you know, like you're thinking you're going to publish it as a book. I mean, like just splat it out, you know, and if for you, you'd rather say it into a dictaphone or whatever that that works too. But the point is to just express whatever the heck that you're thinking. And we know from studies how incredibly transformative this is. There's a psychologist named James Pennebaker at UT Austin, who's done study after study showing that when people just merely write down what they're feeling, it increases their sense of well-being, their creativity, their productivity. It, it even lowers their blood pressure like over a number of months after they 
they start on this course. Um, because what you're really doing when you write things out without any thought for who's going to read it or what you're saying or anything like that, what you're really doing is you're making sense. You're engaged in an act of sense-making of what is happening to you and an act of catharsis as well. So the first step is to, to sit and accept and just be with it. And, and one, one tip that you can use is to actually write it all out. The second step, and, and you may not be ready for it at the beginning, but the second step is this act of transformation. How can you take what you are experiencing and turn it into something else? And that's going to be different for everyone. The first step is don't not to feel any pressure to do this anytime soon. Like the last thing that you want when you're in the middle of a painful experience is to feel like not only did something difficult happen, but now I actually have to like, you know, produce out of it. The point is not so much to be productive. The point is more, how can you heal yourself and heal others? And one of the best ways that we can heal ourselves is by trying to help others who we perceive are experiencing a similar pain. So one of the great archetypes of mythology is the archetype of the wounded healer. And this is the idea of the character who has been wounded in in a particular way. And because of that particular wound, they now have the power to heal other people who have that similar wound. And it's one of the best ways we have of healing our own wounds as well. You know, so for example, like um, the, the mother who, who lost her child to drunk driving, to a drunk driver, and then she creates a foundation of mothers against drunk driving. So it's not that she's going out and healing just anybody. It's not that she decides to be a nurse or something. She, she is deciding to heal this particular pain for other people. And in so doing, it's a healing act for, for herself. I so love that. that. We see that theme across Mind Valley in, in my book, The Buddha and the Badass. I have a quote, your suffering is sometimes the breadcrumbs towards your mission. What we suffer through as a child in our younger years often becomes that pain that we want to take away from the world. And so this ends up guiding us towards a mission. Every entrepreneur typically has values that they embed into their company. And very often these values come from pain. Um, Lisa Nichols um, and her work, she she teaches public speaking in Mind Valley, And one of her processes is really interesting. And, and what you said reminds me of that. She has people go back to, to their past and find that pain. And then understand what that pain gave them in terms of a lesson, in terms of a story, in terms of wisdom, and then to turn that pain into a story with a message so other people can avoid that pain or gain relief from that pain. And something really funny happens when you start looking at the world like that. What you think is your pain in the past stops feeling like pain. It just is an experience that made you stronger. The wound, says Rumi, is the wound is the cut through which the light enters. And it becomes a gift, not just for you, but a gift that you can give everyone with whom you can share that that story. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love that you mentioned Rumi. I, I, I talk about him throughout the book. Yeah. Every, everything that I'm writing about in the book is uh, related to, let's say, to his worldview. And in fact, the, uh, the epigraph to Bittersweet mm-hmm. is from Leonard Cohn, who, whose music I have loved and been obsessed with all my life. I actually dedicated the book to him. But the epigraph is from his song, anthem, which is so similar to the quote that you just mentioned from Rumi. Um, and it is that there is a crack in everything 
that's where the light gets in. Ooh, there's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. Yes. Which is, if you think about it, it's the exact opposite message from everything that we are taught in mainstream culture. We're basically taught there are no cracks, or if there are cracks, you should pretend that they're not there. You know, you should go forth and you live your life as if there are no cracks. Um, you know, to to acknowledge the cracks is to is to be a drag, you know, or to be like not not a strong person in some way. When in fact, true strength comes from seeing the cracks and seeing the light that comes through the cracks. I, I'm going to read the lyrics of that song because this is beautiful. Anthem by, by Leonard Cohen, uh, album The Future 1992. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We asked for signs, the signs were sent, the birth betrayed, the marriage spent, yeah, and the widowhood of every government, signs for all to see. Love it. Oh, and I just saw somebody, uh, somebody just said like Kintsugi, um, which is exactly right. It is exactly like that. So for people who don't know, and I may be mispronouncing it, but um, Kintsugi is the the Japanese art form uh, where, let's say it's, um, let's say it's, it's a vase. The final product is not an intact vase. The final product is a vase that has been broken. And then the, the broken pieces join together with strands of gold. And, and the idea is that the breakage and the visible repair of the breakage makes it even more beautiful than it would have been without the breakage in the first place. Love that. Yeah, somebody yeah. gave me a Kintsuki kit once. I haven't used it in a year, but... I realized I just broke one of my favorite black bowls. I should have totally taken out that kit. That's a beautiful idea. It's it's such a wonderful idea. And yeah, there, there's something in Japanese culture that really talks, that, that really draws on this bittersweet tradition um, very uh, in a very prominent way. So even if you think of the Japanese love of of cherry blossoms, you know, in the cherry blossom festivals. So why are there those cherry blossom festivals? Those flowers, cherry blossoms, they're beautiful, but they're not more beautiful than other flowers are. The reason the Japanese select them is because they're not only beautiful, but they're extremely Mm short-lived. And it's their short-lived nature that inspires in us this idea that the Japanese call mano no aware. And again, I may be mispronouncing it, but the idea of mano no aware is is like the, the deep beauty that we take in the gentle sadness of ephemeral things, which are which are cherry blossoms. And so there's something about turning in this direction, you know, about making the broken cracks visible, making the ephemeral nature of life visible that is understood to enhance our daily experience. So in your book, Bittersweet, in Bittersweet, how else would you say, how, how do we embrace those moments when we are feeling sad? And how do we know if this sadness is bittersweetness or if this sadness could be a sign of something actually being wrong? Right. I mean, the, one of the questions you can ask yourself is, like, do you feel that you can't, you can't extricate yourself from it? Um, so, you know, a, a depressive kind of sadness is a feeling of being stuck, you know, a, a feeling of being mired. You will not be able to feel creative when you're in a true depressive state, as opposed to when you're in more of a bittersweet and melancholic state, you can see, you see the cracks, you see them clearly, you see the impermanence, you see it clearly, and you also see great joy and beauty along with it. I mean, if you think of bittersweetness, the the definition of it is, is the idea that joy and sorrow are forever paired. You're seeing both at all times and you can access both states at all times. 
I, I say at all times. I mean, of course, there are going to be some states where you're all, all, it's like more all joy or all sorrow, but, but, a, but a feeling that you're, you're toggling back and forth between them. So in your, in, on your website, susankane.net, there is a bittersweet quiz, right? And one of the questions you ask in the quiz is, do you know what C.S. Lewis means when he speaks about the sharp, bitter stab of longing? I love that question. The sharp, the bitter stab of longing. I get that. But I wonder, but then you also ask questions um, such as, are you moved more by poetry than by sports? And, and I wonder, is this- Or do you of, see the poetry in sports? I just want to add that for our sports lovers. Is, is, is this bittersweetness something that everybody experiences in the same way? Or is this mm-hmm. a, a, a characteristic? Is there a characteristic of certain human beings that make them more prone to bittersweetness? Yeah. So this is a very good question. I developed this bittersweet quiz together with the psychologist uh, David Yadin at Johns Hopkins and Scott Barry Kaufman. And we did all these studies around the quiz. Um, so first of all, the quiz asks you questions like, um, as well, some of the ones you said, and also questions like, do you, do you draw comfort or inspiration from a rainy day? Um, do you know that feeling of, of, of sad music as a kind of form of uplift? Um, do you feel especially drawn to art, music, and nature? There's a whole bunch of questions, but here's what we found. For some people who score high on this quiz, they also score high on measures of a trait known as high sensitivity, which was a, a trait discovered by the psychologist Eline Aaron. And a highly sensitive person is somebody who kind of reacts more intensely to everything about life. You know, so if there are super bright lights in a room or, you know, really loud noise or a lot of emotional discomfort in a room, a highly sensitive person like picks up on that super intensely and it probably bothers them more than it bothers the average person. Um, And a highly sensitive person is also more reactive to the joys and the beauties. So like that gorgeous sunset, they're going to feel it that much more deeply. So highly sensitive people or tend to score high on this measure of bittersweetness. But there are also a bunch of people who come to bittersweetness, not through this inborn temperament, but just through life experience. You know, after you've been through enough of life's trials and triumphs and you see how they all fit together, that that can predispose you to this bittersweet state of mind as well. So I just did the quiz. I got a mm-hmm. score of 5.6. And it says that if you score between 0 and 3.8, you tend towards the sanguine, cheerfully optimistic. If you score between 3.9 and 5.7, you tend to move between sanguine and bittersweet states to experience both. And above 5.8, you're a true connoisseur of bittersweetness, the place where light and dark meet. Where, what did you say your score was? You were right in the middle, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So you're like right on the cusp of a, of a deep bittersweet, but more in the middle. What I do think is important for people to understand, um, this idea of bittersweetness, it's power just like other powers. So I was talking with a friend of mine and she took the, the quiz and she literally scored a zero on it. So she has like no bittersweetness in her at all. Um, she is a very powerful and wonderful person in a different way. And one of the great lessons I believe we take from our movies, from our mythology, from our literature, is that there are many different kinds of powers on offer in this world, right? And you know, there's the power of the lightsaber. There's the power of 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 the wizard spells. There's the power of uh, of incredible strength. There, there are many different kinds of powers. And the trick in this life is to use the powers that are granted to us 
and to refine and to hone those powers. And there are some people for which this state of bittersweetness is one of our greatest powers. Um, we're living in a culture that doesn't teach us this. And that's where this book comes in. Um, it's like, how do you use that power? If, if this state of bittersweetness calls to you, how do you use it? For people who score highly on this quiz, who, mm-hmm. who, who have the tendency towards bittersweetness, mm-hmm. what is that superpower? What, what is, how, can, how should they maybe perceive or operate in the world differently, taking advantage of this, this characteristic that they have? Yeah. Okay. So we found that people who score high on the quiz also score high on um, measures of being receptive to awe, states of awe, states of wonder, spirituality, and also creativity. So if you are this person, if this bittersweet way speaks to you, you probably also have easy access to these states of awe, wonder, creativity, spirituality, and you should use them and you should lean into them. Um, and you should find them everywhere you go. Like we tend to think of like, um, you know, these states as being during your trip to the Grand Canyon, you get to experience awe or, you know, when, when you go to your place of religious worship, that's when you experience spirituality instead of seeing the world, instead of seeing the portals and the gateways to these states of mind as existing everywhere around us and inviting them into our lives on a day by day, minute by minute basis. Um, So just for example, like I'll go to Rumi again. So Rumi has this amazing poem where he talks about how we wake up in the, he says, we wake up in the morning empty and frightened. And then he says, instead of, I I don't have the exact words at my fingertips, but, but he's basically saying, instead of going straight to our study and starting work, he says, reach for the musical instrument. And then these are the exact words. He says, let the beauty we love be what we do. Let the beauty we love be what we do. For a bittersweet person or for somebody who wants to access that state more often, you should be like immersing yourself in beauty proactively as much as you possibly can. It should be like a, a foundational element of your life. And there's a lot of ways to do this. I, I share in the book that for me, as, as I was writing this book, I started following art accounts all over social media so that my social feed now is full of art. That's what I get. And this was actually at, at first my social feed was like full of, you know, doom scrolling and it was really depressing me and making me anxious when I would wake up in the morning and open my phone. But now I open it and it's full of art. And then I started every morning sharing on my social media favorite pieces of art and taking the time to pair them with favorite poetry or quotes or whatever. And that attracted this community of kindred spirits who are oriented the same way. And so it became this great communal proactive immersion in beauty as the way we started our day. Oh, and, I love that. And, and, and I see <clears throat> what you're saying. It's, it's so interesting. When you're bittersweet, I find it fascinating that you're more prone to moments of awe, more prone to those beautiful moments of aliveness. I've never thought about it that way. And I've never thought that, that there were certain people who are more prone to that. This makes, me, this makes me think of many of my close friends and to see them as slightly different. I mean, we all know introverts, extroverts, right? People get that. They self-label on that. And you wrote one of the definitive books on that concept, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. I, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm beginning to see that there is this other delineate, the type of human being that is prone to bittersweetness or not prone to bittersweetness. Are there words for these personality types? In mainstream psychology, No. <laughs> That's why I wrote the book, actually. Yeah, it literally does not 
exists. If you put um, if you put the word melancholy into uh, you know standard psychological database, you just call up a whole bunch of articles about depression. That's all you've got. And yet, and yet, this has existed for two thousand years. You know, like all across the world, you see people talking about this and wondering about it. Um, you know, two thousand years ago, Aristotle asked the question: Why is it that so many of the great poets philosophers and politicians seem to have melancholic personalities. That's mm. what he asked. Um, and people have been talking about this for, you know, for centuries. It's also like, it's at the heart of our religious and particularly mystical traditions. The idea that, that the fundamental state of being human is to feel a sense of like this cute, joyful, yet bittersweet longing for a more perfect and beautiful world than the one in which we find ourselves. You know, and you, you can express this as a longing for God, you know, a longing for the perfect union, a longing for the perfect love. And this gets expressed again and again, you know, the, the, the longing for the Garden of Eden, the longing for uh, Mecca, the longing for the beloved of the soul, the longing for somewhere over the rainbow. This is fundamental to human nature, and it's, it's one of the best and most generative aspects of ourselves. Beautiful, Susan. Thank you so much for this, this exploration of this idea. For those of you who want to check out Susan's books, the books are called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And her second book, her earlier book that was in the New York Times for eight years is Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. So definitely go check that out. The easiest place to find these is on susancain.net, S-U-S-A-N-C-A-I-N.net. Thank you, Susan. We have a few minutes left. I'd love to take some questions from the mm-hmm. So let's start with this one from Shaista Jabeen. How is bittersweet different from the melancholy that comes from being stuck? It's almost embedded in your question itself. Um, being stuck is being stuck. And in fact, and we actually know when you're in a state of depression, which is you know a, a kind of hopelessness and sense of worthlessness and sense of despair and sense that all energy has seeped away from you, um, it's very hard to be creative or to experience love or anything else when you're in that kind of state. Whereas when you're in a state of bittersweetness, um, you actually feel a great access to all the things that I just named you, you, because you're feeling it all very intensely. It's a, it's a kind of heightened state of being alive. Now, having said this, I, I suspect that bittersweetness and depression are differences of degree rather than differences in kind. And in fact, we found that people who score high on the bittersweet quiz, there is a mild correlation between that and um, states of anxiety and depression. So I guess what I would say is if you feel that you're in a kind of dark place and you can't get out, if you if you only see the cracks and you don't see the light coming through them, um, that's that's a sign for you that you might need some help, whether it's through therapy or something else. Um, and though in the book, I, you know, I give you my own ways of helping yourself through that. But if you find yourself in those states to make sure that you're turning in the direction of beauty, wherever you can, like reach for beauty, look for it. It's there. And I'm defining beauty very broadly. You know, it, it can be literal beauty, like in the form of art, or it could be beautiful moments through a friend who you reach out to, or, um, sometimes the best way is like, you hear music or you read a poem or something like that. And the musician or the poem is expressing something about the way you feel. And you know that you're not alone. 
And so I would look for those people in your lives, look for the artists who, who represent for you that which you truly feel and are. And that's when you feel like these moments of true connection and love. Beautiful. Thank you. And the next question is from Constantine. How can we, the bittersweet, Constantine said he scores 8.6, inform people that we are not depressed, but that this is merely a natural state? Um, I would just talk with people about it. You know, let them know, give them the music that moves you. Just let them know that you're feeling great the way you are. And that's all they need to know. I mean, when, when people are worried about another person being depressed or don't want them to be depressed, it's because they, they are concerned about them. And there's also a feeling like of like, oh my God, I might get drawn into this myself if I'm around it too much. But if you let people know that you are in a productive, generative, creative state, it's like letting the burden off of them. They don't need to worry about you anymore. Awesome. Thank you, Susan. So with that, we wrap up this podcast. I'll see you guys on the next Mind Valley podcast. Susan, thank you so much for being our guest today. And for those of you listening, you can learn about Susan's work and her books on susankane.net. Go check it out and try the quiz to understand your, your bittersweet score as well as you might also want to do the quiz that she has on uh, introverts and extroverts. Thank you all of you for tuning in live and I'll see you next week on the Mind Valley podcast. Thanks guys. And thank you, Susan. Thank you so much, Vishen. It was you're a great interviewer. It was really fun to be with you. Thanks guys. Okay. Bye Susan. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.